You're listening to The Good GP, the podcast for busy GPs. Hello and welcome to another episode of The Good GP. My name's Christina Delange and I would like to begin today's episode by acknowledging the traditional owners of the lands upon which I am recording today, the Yuggera people. I pay my respects to elders past, present and emerging and extend that acknowledgement to the traditional owners of the lands upon which you, our listeners, are tuning into this podcast from. Now, joining me again on today's podcast, I have fellow GP and medical educator, Dr. Tim Jones. Welcome back, Tim. It's good to have you again. Good to be back. For any of our listeners who haven't tuned in for our other episodes, Tim is a GP in Hobart with a special interest in general paediatrics. We've been picking your brain, Tim, about all things paediatrics. And I'm going to extend that today by talking to you about a relatively common issue. I don't necessarily want to label it a problem straight away, um, but that is nocturnal enuresis or bedwetting. Let's start off by talking about just how common it is. And I guess what is the actual developmental trajectory when it comes to this? Yeah. So I think even people who've done a bit of work supporting bedwetting might not realise just how common it is. If you look at four-year-olds, it's one in three four-year-olds will still be bedwetting. By the time you get to six, it's maybe one in 10. By the time you get to 10, it's one in 20. And by the time you get to adulthood, it's one in 50. And so there will be adults in our community who come and see us as GPs who still wet the bed and they're probably never going to volunteer that information unless we ask about it. And so there is this lovely natural trajectory where most people, it is going to be an issue that resolves over time. And by the time you get to teenage years, it's quite uncommon. But that's in no way to dismiss some of the social or emotional impacts it can have on the well-being of the children and families that we see. And that's why it can be a, a really important issue to feel confident with supporting as a GP too. So, Tim, when a family comes to see you with questions yeah. around bedwetting, what's your approach to taking a history and examination? What do you yeah. think are the pertinent points we need to get out? My first thing I always want to try and understand is, is this a new concern or has it always been like this? Because if a child was previously dry at night for more than six months and now bedwetting has returned, there is going to be a new issue behind it. And it doesn't have to necessarily be biological. It could be emotional or psychological, but we've got to figure out what that is. Whereas the majority of children I see will be what's called primary or kind of primary monosymptomatic nocturnal aneurysis, children who've always wet the bed and whose families have gotten to this point of wondering whether they need some support. That I do really like to spend the rest of the history just focusing in on some of the associated conditions and a bit on the family history as well too. So I really want to know about polydipsia and to a degree polyuria as well. That's sometimes hard to quantify, but with drink bottles and nappies, it is a little bit easier. I do also want to know, sadly, a bit about caffeine intake because I have been surprised when I don't ask about it, how many kids come back later and I find out they're actually quite young kids are getting exposure to energy drinks and other caffeine-containing products. I do always want to look for associated constipation because basically any issue involving continence of the urinary tract, the bowel that sits right next to it can be an important part of that. And constipation is another one of those issues that can fly under the radar in our kids. And I particularly pay attention to it in the most common group of kids that come and find me with bedwetting, 
which are the six to seven-year-olds, because so often they've been at school for maybe a year, a couple of years now. They're a bit afraid of the school toilets and they've secretly been holding on to their poo while they're at school. And finally enough, this parallel problem of constipation is starting to evolve. And again, I think that any kind of developmental presentation in a child is a lovely opportunity to do that brief developmental screen as a GP and just see it as a bit of a preventative health check that we should routinely offer our families to. When I'm examining kids, if I've got to the end of my history and this sounds like, as I was mentioning, primary monosymptomatic nocturnal neuresis, just bedwetting, absolutely nothing else going on, I will still palpate a child's tummy to make sure there's no occult constipation. I will consider doing a genital exam with the parents present, but I don't always do it. And I will always try and assess a child's gait and some basic low in neurology, like a squat or some reflexes, just to make sure that I am not missing a spina bifida occulta and hence looking at the base of their spinal column can be an important thing too. And that's about it. My last feature that I, I do always want to try and pick up on is whether I have any concerns about obstructive sleep apnea. So I do tend to just ask families some simple screening questions as to whether their child wakes feeling refreshed, whether daytime sleepiness and tiredness seems particularly profound, and whether there's any family history of either sleep apnea or primary bedwetting, which does tend to have quite a strong family link as well too. So a really thorough history and exam there. Once you're satisfied that this is a primary bedwetting with no other mm. sort of underlying secondary causes. What general advice do you start off with giving families when it comes to management? Mm. I try and always start by just understanding what the parents' perception of it is, because for some families, it might be strongly through the family. They know about it. They're not too worried about it. And they're only concerned because school sleepovers are starting to happen or a school camp. And that's why they're coming to see you now. But conversely, I can meet families where there is a degree of stigma, like the families have already been blaming the child for all the laundry that they're having to do, or they've been restricting fluids to the child a lot before they go to bed, hoping that that would help, or they've been trying to wake the child up and drag this kind of half asleep, half screaming child onto a toilet at 2am in the morning. So if any of that's happening, I do really want to try and reassure that actually this is normal. If I can convince myself there's no emotional or behavioural reason why it's happening to make sure the parents know that clearly and to try and destigmatize it a bit too. It's nothing that the child's doing that's causing this. It's just some kids, and they do tend to be the deeper sleeping kids, don't make as much antidiuretic hormone and they do seem to wet for a bit longer than some other kids. Like so many kind of presentations with families, parents often just are in the comparing game of comparing siblings or comparing to other families and being able to bring in that spectrum of normal is a really powerful thing we can do as GPs. Yeah, and probably, Tim, that reassurance and I guess destigmatization can be enough for a lot of families to just hear yeah. that they're not alone. And I think sometimes quoting some of those statistics you mentioned earlier can be really helpful for families realising that, oh, actually, there's probably several other kids in their class that are also bedwetting. Yes. You know, that can yes. really help them to go, oh, okay, this isn't such an issue. Yes. And 
in my experience, especially in the younger age group, I don't know if you'd agree, but unless it's been made an issue within the family, the child often isn't yes. too worried about it. It's, I guess, more the parent maybe being worried that when's this ever going to end and worried that they're not meeting their developmental milestones. So, if you can yes. catch it early before it's become a big issue for the family and give that reassurance, often that's all that's needed initially. Definitely. I think that's a really good point, Christina. So often if the families just know the natural history, more families than not for me opt for just support, you know, just waiting for a child to outgrow it. If we can convince ourselves and them that there's no underlying medical or emotional issue, the majority of families I see would just let a child naturally outgrow it and just keep them in night nappies until that point. And um, I think that's perfectly appropriate. So, Tim, one of the interventions that a lot of us would be familiar with are the bedwetting alarms. So, let's yep. talk about those. You know, when are they actually indicated then? Um, yeah. And you know, and how effective are they in terms of having yeah. the result of becoming dry? If we maybe go back a step even, bedwetting alarms have changed a little bit. Like most of us when we were training might remember the good old pad and bell alarms where it's kind of a, a mat with a, a moisture sensor in it that tend to be, despite being quite crude, quite expensive to purchase and, and a little bit difficult to access sometimes. There are some more modern devices on the market as low as the $50 mark, which are just kind of undie-worn sensors linked to a, a small alarm or sometimes even Bluetoothing to a device as need be. And they are kind of often a bit simpler for families to access and quite nice in that they can be sold on. So pattern bell alarms have changed a little bit, but the basic principles and when we can use them and what they do, that hasn't changed. So really, the youngest a child can be before you can think about using a bed alarm is six, but at six, the effectiveness of a treatment with a bed alarm might only be 40 to 50%. Once you get to a seven-year-old, it's approaching more like 70% and it's becoming a reasonable intervention. But the most important factor to consider whether a bed alarm is going to be a useful strategy or not is whether the child and family are ready for one. Because the key steps involved in a bed alarm are that the child has to feel in control of their own continence at night and what an alarm's doing. And the parents need to be able to support them in that for quite a long period of time. A standard treatment with a bed alarm is six to eight weeks. And that's a very long time for a family, particularly if they're juggling younger kids, to be getting up at night and helping a child with that process. Yes, you know, like you say, being quite upfront around that from the start. Mm. So they're aware of what they're getting themselves into. It's not a quick, simple fix of, you know, do this for a week and everything will be fine. Knowing yep. exactly what the trajectory of that treatment is early on is, is helpful. So then, Tim, what about what specific counselling would you give families about the alarms then, you know, and, and how to use them? Yeah. So step one is you've got to set up a bed. You need a few layers of waterproof kind of mattress protectors on a bed, whether it's a mat-based sensor or an undie-based sensor for a child, the child needs that pre-awareness of what's going to happen, that basically when they wet at night, an alarm's going to go off and wake them up and they need to be fully awake. They then need to take themselves to the toilet and finishing up anything that might be there. And then they need to come back, peel a layer off the bed, put that into the wash for the next day reset the alarm and go back to bed. So there's a bit of a process involved in that. 
And generally speaking, the first two weeks are going to look really hit and miss for people. They're not going to be sure whether it's actually doing anything because no one can convincingly say how a pad and bell alarm works. We think the feedback loop must be waking kids when they wet turns on ADH production and starts to reduce the amount of wee you make at night time. But essentially, I ask families to try it for four weeks. And if, it, if in that kind of third and fourth week they're seeing a significant decrease in the amount of nighttime wees, then it's worse than carrying on. And once the child's been fully dry at night for two weeks, they can stop. But I also do then have to warn them that there is a moderate relapse rate where a child a few weeks to a few months later might experience a small regression again and they may need a shorter period of time with the bed alarm just to reinforce that training and that feedback loop to the brain again. So, Tim, I'm hearing that this is quite, you know, an in-depth process and like we've mentioned, they have to be quite committed. And I think, you know, making sure then that this is the child's agenda is important. It really kind of needs to be the child that is driving the desire to be dry at night because otherwise probably the family's setting themselves up for failure a little bit if it's purely coming from the parents wanting the change versus the child themselves. I find each year I do a couple of work bits of work supporting families with a better line over the Christmas school holidays, but I don't actually do very much of it during the other periods of the year. There's just too much on for families. And I think that's one of the points I always want to make sure they understand that it will reasonably work but it is quite a process and you've got to commit to it and it's got to work for your child and for your family. If kids are terrified about sleepovers, I'd prefer that we just taught them how to hide a spare pair of clothes or a night nappy within a sleeping bag so that no one needs to know rather than have to go through a whole six to eight weeks of a pad and bell alarm with a younger child just so they can go on a sleepover. Yeah, and I mean, that can be one of the big fears, isn't it? It's around sleepovers and even school camps too and how they yeah. manage that. You know, I do think that with, well, I mean, often, like we said, a lot of families, other families will be dealing with this that we don't even know about because it's not necessarily something that we bring up straight away with another parent we've just met. But often when you mention it to another parent, they might say, oh, no worries, that's fine. Just let me know where the nappy is. I can leave it out for them or I can dispose of something in the morning without any of the other kids knowing. And it's not a big issue. Even I think with some of the reusable products that are available as well they're more discreet so the child doesn't necessarily have to be worried about another child at the sleepover or the camp seeing their nappy because they can actually now look like underwear for all intensive purposes if something's seen under their pajamas so I think that can be quite reassuring as well for them. Yes I find myself often telling the six to eight year olds that there'll be at least one other child in your class and you won't know who they are and they won't know who you are, but this is normal. And please don't worry about it. The, the other parents are going to know about this too. Yeah. Yeah, great. Okay, so then, I mean, there are some medications available, Tim. Depressin is the one that can be prescribed for this condition. So what are the practical considerations, I guess, for prescribing this and when is it actually indicated then? So Desmopressin is a really useful medicine to know about. And I do think it's very appropriate for us to initiate in primary care to the right patient. But it's quite different to what we're talking about with the pattern bell alarms in that we're not actually curing bedwetting at all. We're putting a nice band-aid on it by giving kids synthetic antidiuretic hormone. And so in terms of using it, 
it is on the PBS for kids who have had an unsuccessful treatment with a patent bell alarm. It's also on the uh, PBS for kids who have a neurological or developmental or disability issue that would preclude them from using a patent bell alarm. But having said that, it's certainly approved and indicated for primary enuresis, and it is appropriate to be prescribing it off PBS in certain situations. And so I actually find myself using it more commonly when we need a short-term treatment that's just going to work for whatever reason. Maybe there's a new baby and the family just don't have time for the laundry. Maybe there's a child going on a big trip or a school camp and it's just too much of a barrier for their confidence. Because DDAVP or desmopressin is a pretty safe treatment if we use it thoughtfully. It comes as only two doses. There's a 120 microgram, which we generally start with, and a 240 microgram, and they're both just sublingual waters. We generally kind of use a lower dose, and if that's not quite enough, we use a bigger dose. You take it within the hour before you go to bed, and the only practical consideration with using it is that while it's in your system for eight hours, your body can't regulate its salt water balance as well as it could without that medication. And so you do have to restrict fluids from the hour before you take it and the six to eight hours afterwards. And so you do need a child old enough that they can do that, particularly considering I'm often using it in context where they might be at a different family's house or on a school camp and they need to be able to police those rules themselves with a teacher's support. That's one of the reasons why the old desmopressin nasal spray is no longer routinely used. It was very safe and effective, but I think because it was an in-spray form, lots of families thought that more would just do more, and there were a few case reports of kids having enough desmopressin to wind up hyponatremic, and hence kind of sublingual aphids is where it's at these days. Greg, so some good practical tips there, Tim. Are there any other resources or go-to things that you discuss with families, you know, handouts or things that you tend to give them? Uh, look, the, the Wetaway program, which is the nationwide program for continents, has some lovely handouts and little books for kids to read with their families too, which again all have that goal of destigmatizing, normalizing, and just talking about the natural history. And so I think if families need that sort of resource just to spend some time with their child so that their child feels more confident in themselves, I'm quick to point to those. And I do find that, kind of like most things, the Raising Children Network and RCH and Westmead websites remain a, a relative treasure trove of information for the practitioner as well in terms of knowing the practical steps and the prescribing steps involved in supporting injuries. Well, Tim, thank you very much for joining me today and thank you for doing this short little series with The Good GP on some of these paediatric topics. We really appreciate your expertise and knowledge um, and wish you all the best in the future. Thanks so much, Christine. It's been a joy. Thanks for listening to The Good GP Podcast, a proud member of the Talking Health Tech Podcast Network. Make sure you're subscribed on your favourite podcast player so you don't miss an episode. If you have any questions or would like to contact The Good GP, send an email to thegoodgp at gmail.com. The content of this podcast represents the opinions of The Good GP, hosts and guests of the show. The content is aimed at general practitioners working in the Australian context and is not intended to represent medical advice. 
Any listeners experiencing symptoms or who have concerns about their health should seek advice from a registered health professional. We make every effort to ensure that the information shared is accurate and up to date at the time of recording, but welcome any feedback or corrections. The content of this podcast is general in nature and does not refer to specific patient management. We recommend all health professionals review local and up-to-date guidelines prior to any clinical decisions. 